Welcome to In the Foreground, Conversations on Art and Writing. I am Carol Fowler, your host and director of the Research and Academic Program at the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, Massachusetts. In this series of conversations, I talk with art historians and artists about what it means to write history and make art and the ways in which making informs how we create not only our world, but also ourselves. I'm Caitlin Woolsey, Assistant Director of the Research and Academic Program, and in this episode, I continue our mini-series focused on sound, media, and visual art in conversation with Kyra M. Cabanas, Professor of Art History at the University of Florida in Gainesville, where she is also affiliate faculty in the Center for Latin American Studies and the Center for Gender, Sexualities, and Women's Studies Research. Kyra describes how her early work helped her think about the relations and discontinuities between cultural contexts, and she shares her most recent project focused on transatlantic exchanges in art and psychiatry, and she critiques what is often perceived as the current crisis in the discipline, asking, a crisis for whom? To me, it doesn't seem like a crisis in art history, then, you know, a crisis for a privileged subject position and, you know, who could write art history and determine which art histories count. And I think we need to maybe own sometimes the historical paradox of how one art historian's crisis is another's achievement. You know? <laughs> so how is it that, you know, women, LGBTQ and people of color were and are writing art history? And just as those histories of artistic production and those of the global south are, you know, reconfiguring art history from within. And for me, this is an accomplishment. This is not a crisis. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kyra. It's a real pleasure to have a chance to speak with you. Thank you. Um, It's great, Caitlin, to speak with you in this context. We typically begin and open these conversations by asking how you came to art history. I think I'll begin by saying what I always tell my students, you know, that basically there's nothing in my background that would suggest or point to that I would end up an art historian. So, you know, my family, I'm I'm the first generation born in the United States. I'm also the first and only to earn a PhD. And I was born in Hialeah, Florida. Both of my parents are Cuban. My dad was an immigrant. My mom, a a political refugee, and, and they each come from a family of hairdressers, a fact of which I'm quite proud. And, <laughs> and you know, I grew up in a multi-generational, bilingual, and bicultural home. So, you know, when I started undergrad at, at Duke, you know, I began as a pre-med and a biology major. And so I think most of my students are usually somewhat taken aback by this fact. Um, but it's really, you know, being pre-med and a biology major was In part, you know, I thought that the paths open to me were, you know, as in this is, I think, part of the child of immigrants narrative is like, that's what you do. You become a doctor or a lawyer. Right. And Mm -hmm. I hadn't been exposed to any other um, career options. You know, I was studious, but I, you know, I had challenges with reading comprehension and went to an after learning uh, after school learning center when I was in middle school. And and I was hardworking, you know, and graduated first in my class, but I had in high school, no idea, no sense of what it meant to study the humanities or, you know, art history. So, um, you know, and in part, I always begin this way when teaching, because, you know, as students, we have this tendency to like project onto our professors that they've always already possessed their knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, but I also wanted to affirm how, you know, as a Latina, daughter of immigrants, art history wasn't necessarily my initial go-to. So I didn't feel 
you know, initially that I belonged to the discipline, but that I did eventually make art history my own. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I come to think of this a little bit the way Felix Gonzalez Torres made minimalism his own, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and it's important, I think, to emphasize how knowledge about a subject is not naturally given, but also how my positionality still continues to impact my work. And so in terms of how I turned to art history specifically, you know, I mentioned this kind of feeling of maybe thinking it wasn't not, it wasn't for me. Um, you know, when I went into my first art history classes at Duke, I would see the slides go by and very much felt that that history was not part of my history, but mm. um, I eventually studied abroad in Madrid and it was being in front of like Velasquez and Goya's works that began to shift things for me. And it wasn't just because I was in front of their works, you know, in front of the actual work, but it was also having a professor take us through the Prado. And I was, you know, I, I just remember looking at her speaking in front of all these works and thinking, Oh, wow, you can make a living doing that. <laughs> you know? And, and, um, so that's when, you know, after that, I began, you know, then leaking information to my parents very deliberately. Mm-hmm. You, know, I, you know, I was like, I'm no longer a biology major, but I'm still pre-med mom and dad, you know, and then <laughs> and then I'm no longer either. <laughs> and then, you know, then comes the inevitable response. Oh, well, well what are you what are you going to do? I kind of came through to happenstance in part, um, you know, wonderful exposure to art as an undergrad, um, you know, the the virtues of kind of going into a humanities core curriculum and and being exposed to other things that weren't biology, you know, and, and, and pre-med in my initial years as an undergrad. Was there something about the, the kind of knowledge production in art history or the kind of stories that you could tell or questions that you could ask that you felt to be distinct from what you were, you know, able to pursue or had pursued in biology and a kind of pre-med track previously or was there something in particular that gripped you about art history or was it more it was it more the kind of um, proximity both intellectual and actual to to the works of art and that kind of exposure in and of itself my undergraduate major is not in art history so I think that that's important to state so I kind of had begun this slow shift away from the sciences and then it was the break was consolidated when I was exposed to art history, but that was really as I was entering in, if memory serves my, you know, my junior year. So I actually majored in uh, comparative area studies and, mm-hmm. and had a minor in, in cultural anthropology. And then I think the exposure to art history made me realize that sometimes the intangibles of, of cultural production can be made concrete in an object. And so mm-hmm. I think it was the object focus of art history that, you know, in part got me on this path uh, to study visual production, you know, from film to, you know, art objects. Mm-hmm. And, and within that era, the comparative area studies, you were focused as I understand it, on Latin America and Western Europe at that time? Yes, um, I was. So my primary area was Latin American, uh, was Latin America, and my secondary area was Western Europe. And, and what was great about that was that it was, um, 
it was an interdisciplinary major. So I, I only had to take classes that corresponded to those two geographic regions, but they could be from art history, history, mm -hmm. cultural anthropology, political science. And so that, um, you know, provides a highly contextualist um, and interdisciplinary understanding of, of an area. And were there professors or other sort of mentors during that time that you felt were particularly important to you, either from your art history work or, or in these other disciplines? Well, as an undergrad, Christine Stiles was an important professor for me. And mm -hmm. I took her performance art class, which exposed me to Adrian Piper, Carolee Schneemann, artists like Sherman Fleming. And I have to say that the class totally rocked my world. I was like totally unprepared. <laughs> I was totally unprepared and totally blown away by Carolee Schneemann's performance of Interior Scroll. You know, mm. so, you know, I, I, you know, I often say that it was Christine's class that really sealed the deal for me in terms of choosing to pursue, to pursue art history. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, you know, without, I think without having taken her class as an undergrad, um, maybe that, maybe my, my career path would have, would have been different, but she did open up the uh, diversity of, you know, modern and contemporary art artistic practice to me in, in a way that was quite important for, for my development, for sure. And when you went on to pursue graduate work, was that kind of sent, was that attention to, to performance and to work that is sort of culturally and politically engaged, sort of a, a defining factor of your focus or your interest at that time? Or how were, how were you thinking about yourself and your interests or your work within art history kind of going into graduate school? Well, I think, so in terms of arriving at graduate school, so, you know, thinking a bit about my, my undergraduate degrees and, you know, comparative area study and anthropology, I think what that helped me work through was really how to think about the relations between cultural contexts, which I think also was something I was exposed to in the, in the performance art class as well. Mm. But not only the relations between cultural contexts, but also kind of discontinuities between cultural contexts. And so, you know, I think for me in retrospect, cultural anthropology was important, was an important part of my undergraduate learning, it, you know, the discipline of anthropology is rightly critiqued, right, for its colonial underpinnings. But I also think that in its best form and practice, it defamiliarizes and denaturalizes our assumptions of what we take to be, you know, self-evident truths. Mm -hmm. um, and in that regard, I, I always remember an anthropology seminar I took with Professor Claudia Strauss on motherhood, actually, and, and being struck by how feelings of, you know, motherly or parental care not only shift, right, depending on the cultural context, but also on how such emotions are impacted by poverty, you know, in places mm -hmm. like northeastern Brazil. And so that was formative. And um, when I arrived in art history, and so initially at Yale, I thought I was going to focus on, on Latin American art, but it wasn't being taught in, in the department. And, you know, I did have some training, let's say, um, you know, within modern art history, you know, that appreciation for what is called, you know, the global modern is not what it is today. Mm -hmm. 
But at Yale, I was fortunate to work with Kelly Jones and with her in the context of an independent study, designed a syllabus on Latin American conceptualist practices. And I also worked as a research assistant, um, producing I produced an annotated bibliography on modern art in Latin America. So in graduate school, the only university, let's say, graduate training I had on the modern art of Latin America was with Kelly Jones. <laughs> and so, uh, which I think is great. And, and, um, so there's a way in which like my primary and secondary areas were reversed in grad school, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. that my secondary area of Western, you know, art, Western European art became primary and the secondary area was not part of my formal training. I mean, there's a generation now in the U.S. that um, have, you know, written their dissertations, published their books on modern art and of Latin America. So I think there's a very robust conversation going on. Mm-hmm. I think generationally, there may be four or five years, my junior, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and so, you know, part of it was like, well, who am I going to be conversing with, right? right if I were to do that, um, and, you know, just kind of waiting for art history to kind of catch up, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then also um, something that I, that I experienced, Caitlin, at the time was, you know, I, I was often told or it was recommended to me that I could work on Latin American art or modern, you know, modern art of Latin America. And at the time, I understood this as a conflation of my identity as a Latina with a research subject that I could mm-hmm. potentially gain competence in. You know, so in this mm-hmm. case, Latin American art, mm-hmm. you know, which is different than studying work by Latinx artists. Um, who right. were, you know, born and raised in the United States. And so, you know, one can one can choose to work on subjects related to one's identity. But I think in my specific case, you know, in the wave um, or in the wake of the first wave of identity politics in the 1990s, I, I didn't want to succumb to pressure to study work based on mm-hmm. my ethnic identity. For Latin American art, I mean, there were really wonderful, I mean, Advances, let's say, in curating in the 1990s and even in the 80s really put modern and contemporary art of Latin America on the map, right? Mm -hmm. So while there might not have been professors at the institutions I attended, you know, wholly dedicated to that work, I mean, I can, you know, name Luis Perez Oramas, uh, Monica Amor, people who were doing that work and curating shows at the time, that were references for me. Um, Mm. And so it wasn't like this totally, you know, desert field, just Mm -hmm. the the time lag between its, you know, institutional curatorial appearance and then its insertion within modernist art histories, you know, there's like Mm -hmm. almost 15 to 20 years in between that, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's in part because of this academic, you know, exclusion or lag, you know, I went on to study with Hal Foster and I chose to work on post-war European art. And at Princeton, I had the privilege of an intellectually diverse committee that included Carol Armstrong, Bridget Doherty, and Brandon Joseph, who was there as a postdoc at the time. And, you know, working with Hal, I always knew that the work I produced needed to be good and not necessarily that I needed to become an expert in his research subjects. I never felt any pressure in that way that I would need to mirror um, the areas and, or even the methodology, right, that he, he um, turns to. And so, you know, I learned from Hal and my committee how to ask 
key questions of my research material, and each of them impacted my critical thinking in different ways, you know, whether I was working on modern art or on film. And after my defense, and I went from Princeton to Columbia, Brandon continued to be an, an important interlocutor um, and, has, and has remained so. In terms of how I began to be interested in, in film, so I mean, this is maybe not quite answering um, your question, but so when I began at Yale, so in addition to Kelly Jones, Noah Stamatsky was teaching film at Yale at the time, and I, I took her her seminar on the face and film. And when I ended up transferring to Princeton, she told me to, without a doubt, reach out to P. Adam Sidney and uh, take a class with him. And I ended up TAing for him. Mm-hmm. But then in the course of when I was doing my research on the Nouveau Réalisme, one of the first books I read was actually about lettrist film, which, mm. which was so exciting. But, you know, it, but I was like, oh, I can't deal with this now. I have to deal with this at, a, at, a, at another time. But I often think of that lettrist book as almost a prequel to the myth of Nouveau Réalisme, written mm. in, the, in, you know, reverse order. Mm-hmm. But, um, and at the time there was, you know, you know, art history moves slowly. And, and at the time in, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, even post-war European art wasn't really being taught, right? If you were to mm-hmm. take a 1945 to the present survey, you know, it would go from abstract expressionism, neo-data, pop, minimalism, institutional critique to the present. And, and, and so the 50s is this moment in in Europe, uh, which had just suffered, you know, the destruction of, you know, World War II, um, the Holocaust, all of this was not really part of the narrative. I mean, it was really, you know, triumphal in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. abstract expressionism and a post-war United States genealogy of artistic production. So even mm-hmm. in working on the Nouveau Réalisme at the time, it didn't feel to me that I was contributing to like reinscribing a dominant narrative. There, there's still, I think, much to be said about the post-war European context and how artists cope with with the aftermath of, of the war um, through aesthetic production. Your interest in sort of film and media would is that did that sort of arise from those experience those experiences in graduate school or sort of how? Oh yes, for sure. If I had more time, I think I would dedicate more time. Uh, to film, but mm. film takes time, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I lived very close to anthology film archives. So it was like my living room, you know, I would go there <laughs> and, and go see films. And it doesn't, it didn't matter what it was. I would just go. It was a wonderful resource, um, mm-hmm. that I wish I lived closer to, uh, to, um, you know, to, to learn about film. Also kind mm-hmm. of in an informal way, I would say. Um, not unlike, I guess, how I, I learned about modern art of Latin America. I guess there's a lot of self-taught in me too. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. in, all, in all of us, basically, in all of us. But I'm interested too in, too you speak perhaps a little bit about kind of how the question of media has kind of carried throughout your different projects and your different lines of research in terms of, you know, questions of, the medium as an atmosphere, as a framework, a mediation, and sort of how the writing of art history intersects with these questions of media kind of broadly understood, not just as the kind of technological apparatus, but these other more um, 
effusive or unruly kind of ways of thinking about media? Sure. Um, so I find, so I find it curious. I mean, yes, I just was talking about film, but I don't really think of myself as particularly interested in media, which is mm -hmm. perhaps um, surprising or not surprising. I mean, your own work, you're writing on Henri Chopin, so I can see potential resonances. But I think maybe more the at, the question of atmosphere mm -hmm. framework. Um, you know, when I when I was working on Letra's film, I, I became really obsessed with the history of the film club. You know, as a space in which, you know, there was a time when you know somebody live would you know introduce the film live, and then there would be a debate and how this intellectual sociability. Mm -hmm. within what what is now a very popular medium, right? A film was kind of, it, it became the material of Lettrist films, right? And mm -hmm. and this this ability or, or way to think of film beyond the film strip per se, but as a social practice mm -hmm. was for me to think about how to practice film otherwise. And so, I mean, I think in terms of building a bridge, because I think that, I mean, you were used the word capacious and, and, um, you know, that early work on, on Lettrist film, you know, it finds a kind of resonance in learning from madness, which is about a different problematic, particularly when I talk about Javier Teyes and Alejandra Riera's work and how they, they both work and use film and collaborate with psychiatric patients. But in so doing, they, you know, they challenge our, our assumptions of both cinema and mental health. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a way in which, you know, working on this question of how to practice film otherwise, as it was instantiated within Lettrist film, in large measure, you know, as a way of undoing the way that speech was hijacked during World War II in terms mm -hmm. of propaganda. But that has an afterlife in this other work, which um, deals with the problematic that I'm I'm most close to now in terms of the intersections between art and and uh, psychiatry. So, I'd love to hear you speak a little bit more about some of these more recent projects. How you arrived at these at these topics? I think this is a way to address like how everything comes together, and and perhaps also account for the kind of I don't know why I keep returning to the word capacious, but I will, there's, there's probably another word to describe to what might seem like an ad hoc amalgamation of like random interests, but it's not. Um, the project that actually unites all these different, um, let's say research foci is, is really Spectres of Artaud Language in the Arts in the 1950s, which was the exhibition I curated with experimental musician and composer Frederic Aquaviva, who you, who you also know. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that exhibition was, you know, an opportunity for me to bring together in a, in a single project various scholarly interests and objectives by kind of, you know, tracking Artaud's reception and how it intersected with the rise of interdisciplinary practices in various locations. So the exhibition triangulated Paris, Black Mountain, and Rio de Janeiro, and also some artistic practices in Sao Paulo as well. And it was really about tracing an idea across geographies rather than having geography be the limit or boundary within which, mm -hmm. you know, 
thought or artistic practice takes place and or is defined. I mean, it's almost like to have geography be a limit when like the world is constituted from migrations is to impose a kind of artificiality to Mm -hmm. the space time in which art takes place. And so the, the exhibition in that regard, so it included, um, Letrism included artistic practices, you know, going around um, John Cage's 1952 untitled event, which was often considered the first happening, and then uh, concrete and neo-concrete art, both poetry and the visual arts as part of it. Mm-hmm. But it also, as an exhibition, tracked Artaud's, you know, critical and clinical reception. And so I think here's where then you know, we have the kind of pivot to, mm-hmm. to art and psychiatry in, in my work. And I will I will tell an anecdote, I think, that in part clarifies this move. So, you know, the Spectres of Artaud for me was a, an unexpected invitation. It was, um, you know, Manolo Borja, the director of Reina Sofia, he, he asked... So I said to him in a meeting that I thought somebody should do a retrospective of letrism. And his response was, well, do you want to do that? (laughs) (laughs) And and I was like, "Um, well, let me get back to you. You know, I I, I didn't really see myself as wanting to do a retrospective on letrism, not because Mm -hmm. that doesn't need to be done right in a very thorough way. But it's as as an intellectual project. I don't. I just didn't see myself in the like doing a retrospective. Isn't like mm-hmm. it, it just doesn't seem to be what I how I would want to approach um, the opportunity to actually do an exhibition, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I you know I, I put a proposal together about Artaud and and language, and um, you know outlined these three geographic sites that I thought Artaud's presence was important to think about and track. And when I proposed this to him, then he's like, well, you really need an epilogue and and you should do the living theater as the epilogue. And then I just kind of was like silent. And then it was another like, oh, well, let me get back to you. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, Manolo is super rigorous, right? And so I I needed to come back with a alternative that was compelling, right? And Mm -hmm. not not just, I I just didn't, I also didn't see myself in the way, for different reasons, I didn't see myself, you know, doing a retrospective of the letterist movement. And I didn't see myself in terms of my intellectual interests being uh, reinforced working on the living theater. And, and mm-hmm. um, so I called my friend and colleague, Jorge Ribalta, and I, I remember this scene very vividly. I was in Paris and I was somewhat in distress with this suggestion because it didn't resonate with me. And so Jorge, who's worked with Manolo for a long time, was like, why don't you do something related to radical psychiatry? And so this must have been in 2011. And so then I was like, okay, yes, I can do that. That's something I I am interested in that has come up in my research tangentially. Um, I can absolutely do this. And so that ended up being my, you know, counter proposal was to do an epilogue about Artaud's, you know, clinical reception in terms of the fact, you know, Artaud returns to drawing in the clinical Mm -hmm. context. He was in a psychiatric you know, various psychiatric institutions over the course of eight years subjected to electroshock, horrible. 
but you have material that deals with, you know, radical psychiatry that includes the letras and Isidore Izu. They have an entire, you know, therapeutic program that they develop in, you know, in the wake of May 68 and Izu's internment in Saint Anne. And you have Ligia Clark also exposed to anti-psychiatric proposals and, you know, radical psychiatry also in the same years Hmm. in Paris, because she's in Paris. It's her second Mm -hmm. um, residence in Paris. And so, so this was, you know, really productive to think about, well, what does, you know, that's kind of amazing that you have Isidore Izu and Ligia Clark in the same city at the same time, thinking about mental health and the psychiatric institution and so that became then, you know, the epilogue to the Artaud exhibition. Um, and, you know, when I was doing the research for Spectres of Artaud, I learned that, you know, it was actually, he was first read in Rio in the psychiatric context. Hmm. Yeah. And so it was Nisada Silveira who was reading Artaud in the late 40s. And, you know, around that same time, Ferreira Goulart was also reading Artaud. And in, in searching for Artaud's ghosts, you know, I found these links between Artaud's reception, psychiatric patient's art in Brazil, and geometric abstraction, right? And so this is then what consolidated the move to, you know, develop what was, you know, the third section of the exhibition on Brazil and geometric abstraction and think about the convergences and divergences of art and psychiatry and their discourses, right, relating to Mm -hmm. artistic practice and creativity. And so, you know, that culminated in learning from madness, you know, which was, you know, basically to show how the creative work of psychiatric patients was claimed as art in Brazil and exhibited in modern art venues as early as the 1930s. And so this is a a key discontinuity for me between Europe and Brazil in relation to the history of the visual arts produced within asylums. And, and some of that early work of uh, Nisa de Silveira's patients was also exhibited in Spectres of Artaud, but mostly in the context of documents and a film, mm. uh, a film by Leon Kirschman that is almost like a slideshow of various uh, works by the patients. So, so I think that in terms of the, Yes, what what accounts for the varied interests and how they were, you know, kind of channeled into different books. I think Spectres of Artaud really provides that that logic, um, both in mm-hmm. terms of the problematic, right, in terms of the mm-hmm. turn toward to art and psychiatry, but also the particular geographic sites mm. um, that my work engages. You mentioned a few times, um, you know, in the in the course of your research, sort of surfacing these connections, and I would be curious to hear you. Um, reflect a little bit on sort of what, like what role does the archive play in your work? My first job in art history was for the archives of American art. And Mm. I think in the way that I had no idea in high school, what, you know, what art history or the humanities was, I think as an undergrad, I didn't really know what an archive was until I worked at the archives of American art. And, um, was able to kind of go through their file cabinets of things, right? And and became totally enamored with what it means to like go through people's personal papers <laughs> or <laughs> records. Um, you know, I'm very committed to archival research. Um, and I don't think that digitizing archives supplants doing research on site. Um, mm-hmm. 
because say more about that. Yeah. So I think there's, you know, we can, we can think of two ways of um, thinking about the archive, the actual, right. And this is very Foucauldian of me to say, but you know, there's the actual, you know, archive where, you know, all those documents are housed. And then there's the archive of what can and, and is not, or is not set. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, dominant art history has its own archive of, you know, it's like, its methodology is an archive. Some things are within the method allowed in and others remain external to it. And so when you go to the actual physical archive, for me, it's like what, what might seem insignificant to the dominant archive of art history. If I make that have a central role, how does that shift the contours of the archive of what can be said within art history? Mm. Right. And so I don't think we can just say, you know, and, and that also, I think, has to do with going to a place and, and, you know, speaking the language and speaking with people. And then all of a sudden you realize, well, actually, the way art history is practiced in Brazil is not the way it's practiced in the U.S. And artists who in the U.S. might be aligned with performance art are not considered performance artists in Brazil. And mm-hmm. so there's a way that we need to be thinking about, you know, archives in this multifaceted way. At the same time, yes, I like being on the ground. I like the challenges, and they are sometimes seemingly insurmountable in Brazil about how to get to an archive <laughs> or actually get the little piece of paper or the letter from Dubuffet that I want, that I know was sent, but I don't have the original. You know, I mean, these things, mm-hmm. and I just kind of go on this almost like detective quest to unearth things. And I, you know, in, in that, I've been lucky. Um, there's this psychoanalyst Flavia Corpas and, and I think she ha- must have the same, you know, spirit of like detective uncovering of um, clues because, you know, I remember once we were just like in this search for this one photograph and then, you know, she ended up finding it and it's just, that's very gratifying, you know, mm-hmm. and um, even if it might not change what you initially think, going into a project, I do think that in the way that the art object resists assimilating, being assimilated to language, the, the document will cause resistances to mm-hmm. what you think was maybe going on. And, and then you're looking at it and you're like, oh, well, actually, no, it's, it's different. Um, right. And so it, it entails a type of close looking that I think art objects also ask of us as well. So I love archives. I love archives. I would love to hear you speak about if there are certain texts that are are important. Again, it's like not, it's not self-evident. And I think that's what I kind of enjoy most about it. It's like, you know, when I was a grad student, Judith Butler was really key to my thinking and her work on the politics of speech. Mm-hmm. But in my graduate courses, you know, and I think that there's always this distinction between like what, what I was most impressed by, but then actually then what ends up being most visible in in the Mm -hmm. work I do. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I was most impressed by Leo Bersani's Freudian body and intimacies when I was Mm -hmm. a grad student, but you know, these works aren't reflected in my research in any immediate or legible way, except for, you know, I did use intimacies or proximidades as the title of a book I edited on Brazilian artist Lazio Redondo's work. And you know, I don't read much art history except for when I'm teaching, really. Um, but within art history, the two books that I've most admired and learned from 
recently, right, we're reading Georges D.D. Uberman's Survival of the Fireflies and Darby mm-hmm. English's To Describe a Life. Mm-hmm. So I think this, in some sense, might, you know, take us back to the question of care, because, you know, even though, you know, it might seem totally contradictory, like D.D. Uberman and Darby English, but they appeal to me in in different but similar ways. So, you know, I don't know if you've read Survival of the Fireflies, but it's, it's mm-hmm. a wonderful text that unites fireflies, Pasolini, homoerotic desire, and contrasts the excessive light of fascism with the fleeting and threatened light and life of fireflies. And so mm-hmm. this text for me was the most um, beautiful. And, you know, so now every time I see a firefly, I have this like almost more than magical <laughs> moment, right? But this is what I love. It's this more than magical, but also vulnerable moment of appearance for me. So like you know, mm-hmm. fireflies, they're disappearing. We need to care for them. <laughs> and in, in Darby's book, he discusses discomposure, um, which, you know, is about blurring the black-white divide that pervades mm-hmm. the dominant discourse in the U.S., but he also addresses the vulnerability of what he calls thin knowing. And so there he departs from a poem by Kay Ryan, and and for me this question of you know thin knowing is also part of the tenuousness of what it means to produce knowledge, right? And, and I mm-hmm. think that it has to do in some way with fireflies. You know, there's something about the kind of nuance, the the tenuousness, the vulnerability that we can think about thin knowing and fireflies in the same thought um, and that be productive. And in both of these, but my all time, my all time, like, um, you know, like move to tears text um, <laughs> was Serge Denis, the tracking shot in Capo. Mm-hmm. And, and this is one of those moments where I, I remember I was in the Getty archive. I don't remember what I was reading and I started weeping I was probably waiting for my archival materials to arrive, mm-hmm. right? And, so, and then I was reading this, you know, printout of Denise tracking shot in Capo. And, you know, sometimes I joke that it was probably to the lack of oxygen and the giddy, you know, those rooms, they're like airtight, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm reading the tracking shot in Capo and really just start crying. And, and he, you know, there he talks about an alternative education you know, how he would go to the local cinematheque and learn about film as his, you know, parallel education to what he would learn in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is beautiful and something I always also tell my students because the expectation can't be that I will teach them everything. They have to also figure out what, what their desires to know are and to do that parallel education. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, um, the conceit that we would be able to, you know, or that I as a single person, even in the context of one class on one specific subject would be able to satisfy my students desire to know, you know, I mean, there's some responsibility for people to also, you know, have that alternative education. And so Mm -hmm. this is very important um, for me in terms of Denis text, but also in that text, he, he talks about his refusal to see a film to, so, he, so he's not implicated in the type of viewing it requires. And so mm-hmm. he's talking about a film in which there's a moment of the aestheticization of death at a concentration camp. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and that part is really, um, you know, in terms of the ethics of, of seeing and refusing to see, right, mm-hmm. um, was a moving account for me of how you might, you know, you might not be able to change the world, but you can always say no. Like, mm-hmm. am I going to watch that? No, <laughs> um, because of how it might position you as a subject at the moment of viewing. And so, 
And with all of that, you know, those three disparate, you know, from Didi Uberman to Darby to Serge Denis, I mean, I think it's not just the, the subject of those books, and of course, Judith Butler as well, um, you know, not just the subjects of the books that moved me, but, you know, how they were written. You know? right. And, and um, writing is always a struggle. Um, and, you know, so they serve as, as inspiration for me as mm-hmm. well. And, and the type of care, I think, that comes across in those texts is, I would love to talk a little bit more about your book, Imminent Vitalities, that just came out this year. I mean, in part, Imminent Vitalities was, and, and this comes across most in the in the introduction, is written to go against the, you know, well, first it takes as its point of departure, you know, the new materialisms that kind of emerged in the early 2000s as a way of rethinking agency and, and the agency of um, a material object and material practice and, and thinking about how art could serve as a fitting model for thinking through such entanglements, particularly of materiality and subjectivity in the work of artists you know, from and related to Latin America. And so it's, it's very much a theoretical approach and... And part of it was to go against an implicit academic bias that when one writes about modern and contemporary art of Latin America, one needs to provide more cultural context. But if you write on, you know, Euro-American modernist art histories, you can be purely theoretical. So, you know, you can write a theoretically idea-driven book on, let's say, Andy Warhol. But when it comes to Alicia Clark, you'll be asked to, like, talk more about Brazil in order to Mm. legitimate her work's Mm -hmm. meaning, right? Mm -hmm. And there are ways in which I've talked about this in different contexts about like as a double burden, right? In the right. U.S., we, we um, you know, take as given that English speaking readers will, will know uh, the context in which Andy Warhol, for example, is producing his work. And we will then, you know, ask that more unpacking be done um, when it comes to artists from, from other regions and, um, so this, you know, I, I aligned this in, in the introduction to Imminent Vitalities. I described it as a type of blackmail. And, and there I, I was referencing Eva Lambois' wonderful introduction to Painting as Model, which I really recommend people to go back and read, which he talks about the various types of biases and blackmail that, it, that occur in academia. And so this was a particular type of blackmail that, like, that art from Latin America can only have meaning if you speak of it in a geopolitical frame seems to also confer on it different requirements in terms of methodology, but also theoretical purchase it might have on modern and contemporary art as such. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, and this relates to, you know, I guess when we began speaking, you know, in part my own experience from undergrad to the present with, you know, I, I experience unease with concepts like subdiscipline or center periphery. And, you know, I first encountered center periphery in the 90s and as an undergrad. And to kind of continually use these terms to me reinscribes hierarchies that would be preferably displaced. Um, right. So, and, and this might be a generational response on my part, but I remember once a colleague asking me to acknowledge that there is a subdiscipline of modern Latin American art. <laughs> and I totally resisted. I was like, because that situates the production in a lesser kind of sub place, you know? So, um, so, you know, I think I want us to be, 
you know, and, and the book is already in a series on Latin American art. And I remember the editor asking me to have Latin American art in the title. And I'm like, why am I going to put Latin American art in the title? It's already in the name of the series, right? And so, <laughs> so there's that. Um, but in terms of my, my approach, and so imminent vitalities, I mean, it tracks the kind of entanglements of materiality and subjectivity from a kind of semi-autonomous modern art to more contemporary artistic projects. And it focuses on select cases in Brazil and Venezuela, right? So mm-hmm. I, I don't have competence in all, you know, 23, sometimes 30, depending on how one um, counts them, you know, countries in Latin America. So it's very specific in terms of what I'm looking at, but also wanting it to be, you know, specific and complex and nuanced so that something is revealed about the artistic practices, but that through proposing imminent vitalities as a theoretical frame, it also has a kind of broader intellectual theoretical purchase that might be useful for somebody working on other aspects of of modern and contemporary art. So, um, and and that I think also obtains in, in even other works like, you know, the myth of nouveau realisme. I mean, the operative concept there is performative realism. And so for me, Mm -hmm. yes, you can learn a lot about post-war France, but you can also think about how performativity and realism converge to displace referentiality and that might be useful for somebody, you know, writing in a context that is not specific to post-war France, even though, you know, all of them, I think, as you mentioned before, I'm very careful to be attentive to the discontinuities and differences. What is your sense of, of sort of where, where things are at today within the discipline? Last year, I taught a graduate seminar. It was a curatorial seminar. And so I, you know, I taught the you know, history of various exhibitions. And I taught Kurt Varnado's text, which is his response to the criticism of the MoMA Modern Art and Primitivism show. Mm. And, you know, um, this text is from 1984. And when I read in Varnado's text, something along the lines of, I think he says, the discipline of art history is felt to be in crisis. You know, and when I read this, you know, I I was reminded of how I heard similar statements in graduate school. And I always, you know, I'd always ask myself, Caitlin, like a crisis for who? Like, who's this a crisis for? You know, and and to me, it doesn't seem like a crisis in art history, then, you know, a crisis for a privileged subject position. And, you know, who could, you know, who could write art history and determine which art histories count. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always struck by, you know, and I think we need to be, you know, maybe own sometimes the historical paradox of how one art historian's crisis is another's achievement, you know? (laughs) So, you know, how is it that, you know, women, LGBTQ and people of color were and are writing art history. And just as those histories of artistic production and those of the global South are, you know, reconfiguring art history from within. And, Mm -hmm. and for me, this is an accomplishment. This is not a crisis. Um, It's an opportunity to include other voices in all art historical fields from the ancient to the contemporary, and to basically learn approaches that might have us consider the limits, biases, and naturalized assumptions of the discipline as we know it. And, you know, I say this in part because I feel that, I feel that sometimes I'm just living in this circle. Like, how is it that, you know, I went through the 90s and these same conversations are coming back today and like, why are some people condemned to this circularity and others just move forward, you know? And so, 
And, and all of this, you know, I think we might have talked about this in another conversation, in part prompted me to choose to retire from art history, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and this has been, you know, had various, you know, my response to my retirement from art history has meant different things for me, but, you know, I, I will narrate this in part um, and take this interview as an opportunity to, you know, basically, you know, last year it was like in September and, you know, I turned to my partner, Jesus, and I said, I'm retiring from art history. I don't know what that will mean in practice. And, you know, he looks at me rather quizzically, you know, but he takes me seriously because, you know, I don't joke about such things. And, and then I even confirmed the following to my students in seminar the following week, the students in the same curatorial seminar in which we had read the, you know, Kurt Barnado mm. text. And I'm like, I retired from art history. And, you know, I told them, I was like, you know, Duchamp retired from art, but I don't play chess, so I don't know what I'm going to do, you know. <laughs> and, you know, and I read from notes about how we seem to be living in a moment which art doesn't matter and art's being asked to do other things. It's being asked to, you know, answer pre-formulated questions and offer ready-made answers or, or to serve as an illustration of a sociological reality. So this question of the circularity of like the crisis and like not the crisis of the discipline, but let's just say that it's the crisis of particular subject positions or gatekeepers are being displaced, Mm -hmm. however we want to describe that. But, you know, is it really a crisis in the discipline? Mm -hmm. And then and then I'm also ill at ease with, you know, what I what I find to be the increasingly visible performative contradiction of like scholars who will declare a decolonial intention, but continue and by and large impose Western ideas on the, you know, quote unquote, foreign object. And so mm-hmm. this is also something else that I, I don't quite, um, you know, the kind of the declaration of a certain politics, but the actual practice of something that's an imposition is to me a, a, a contradiction that is not sustainable. And so there's, mm-hmm. there's, or ethically, it's not ethically sustainable. Right. I also don't like the talk of the limits of art history because I think art history has a lot to offer mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and that we have a wonderful opportunity in the present um, for what art history can do. And within that, that new, this new phase of, um, of perhaps greater freedom in your own orientation to the discipline, um, I wrote this article called Caring for Butterflies, and it takes as its point of departure Abby Varberg's psychosis. And of course, you know, Varberg is foundational to the discipline, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but few art historians talk about, you know, that he was basically, you know, had a psychotic break and developed and performed his famous serpent ritual lecture while still in a psychiatric clinic in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. So, so for me in, in this text, Caring for Butterflies, I, I kind of situate his intellectual labor and the art history lecture with slides within the occupational therapy program that was actually part of the clinic's therapeutic community. And so for me, I want to ask, well, what does it mean for Varberg's lecture or, you know, art history practices a form of therapy to be a condition of possibility for thinking the pursuit and scholarly outcomes of art historic of art historical interpretation. And so mm-hmm. like what does it mean to begin to think of art history as therapeutic? And and you know, and part of this was to answer, you know, Georges Didi Uberman in, in 1998, he actually posed this question. And so now this is, you know, 20 
three years ago that he asked, you know, what is art history prepared to recognize that one of their foundational um, scholars was someone who, you know, spent five years in mental institutions, um, who was, he was speaking to butterflies for long hours on end, and his doctor thought that he would never be cured, right? And so, mm. and so, you know, I situate Varberg within this therapeutic community, which included a farm, art and music and sports facilities, as well as the garden where he spoke to the butterflies with, right? And so, you know, for me, this is to kind of think about art as a form of care and mm -hmm. art history, really, as a form of care. And to think about the network, network of relations that allow for art, but also art historical practice to emerge. And so the Varberg is, you know, in part you know, a point of departure for thinking about art history as a discipline and also, you know, provides the point of departure for my next project, which is tentatively titled Deviant Histories, Radical Psychiatry and Art as Creative Care. And so this, it's more about the role that art and artists have played in international calls for asylum reform in the, in the 20th century. And so mm -hmm. there I'll be looking you know, and so it's to look at art in totally different conditions, like how, how, you know, how is psychiatric treatment that uses the visual arts or aesthetic experimentation as part of its care, you know, what does that reveal about not only psychiatric care, but also how art can make visible, in some instances, the politics of, you know, psychiatric reform. What I love about you know, art history, even with my retirement, is is that it is, um, you know, a supple, rigorous, at its best, ethical um, practice and bestows care on, on the objects it studies, right? Even, mm -hmm. even the butterflies, even the butterflies. Thank you for listening to In the Foreground, conversations on art and writing. For more information about this episode and links to the books, articles, and artworks discussed, please consult clarkart.edu slash rap slash podcast. The Clark Art Institute sits on the ancestral homelands of the Mohican people. We acknowledge the tremendous hardship of their forcible removal from these homelands by colonial settlers. A federally recognized nation, they now reside in Wisconsin and are known as the Stockbridge Wensee community. As we learn, speak, and gather here at the Clark, we pay honor to their ancestors, past and present, and to future generations by committing to build a more inclusive and equitable space for all. This program was produced by Caitlin Woolsey and myself, with music by Light Chaser, editing by John Boutine, and additional support provided by Jesse Centivan.